0: Hey, this is Emily. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You.
1: So I'm so excited for today's episode because something you know about me if you follow me on Twitter is that I love television. <laughs> Nothing I love more than TV TV. And today we're breaking down um, a television series, or a, a Hulu series, I guess I should say, that a lot of y'all have written in wanting to unpack. And we're excited to unpack it. We've been watching along with you, and now is the time. So today we're talking about The Handmaid's Tale. I should say uh, two quick things. If you haven't seen The Handmaid's Tale, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, we are going to get into the plot details. If you haven't seen it and you want to see it and you don't want it spoiled, skip this one. Skip this one, for sure. Um also trigger warning this show is one of the most traumatic things i've ever seen um it deals a lot with really heavy issues around um rape rape and violence against women and um a whole lot of really heavy stuff so just trigger warning that that is yeah. what's happening in this show so if that's something that's going to be tough just know that
0: And if it's not safe for you to listen, you don't have to, and if it is going to be later, you can always come back. But I remember getting a lot of tweets when we first launched the show of of women requesting, and we got tons of emails from y'all requesting The Handmaid's Tale as a topic, and I was reticent to start the series. I was like, I already feel like I'm living in a dystopian (laughs) nightmare. I don't want to get my entertainment from a act like a really scary dystopian future in which women were persecuted, because I already feel like that is my reality. And then Bridget was like, "Are you watching? You need to watch." And I was like, "Okay, I'll do it for the podcast." And once I was in, I was hooked. But it was traumatizing. It's heavy. I I watched it.
1: I had to space it out. I watched like. Well, I I couldn't watch more than one in a day, really? and when I would, oh god, no! I binge watched it, and when I would watch it, I would have to have a palate cleanser. So I would have a couple episodes of Bob's Burgers queued up <laughs> or something real silly, just so just so I could sleep at night. I love it. That's smart. That's so a good tactic if you want to watch it, but you don't want to be horribly, horribly bummed out and depressed about things. I rely
0: heavily on the subreddit Eye bleach. Have
1: oh, you heard it's, of that? Like, it's like puppies and kittens, and it's like sweet- when you've fallen into two deep a hole on the internet. Yeah. Get your eye bleach ready for this one because it's a, it's a tough watch. <laughs> um, so if you don't know about the show or the book, uh, basically what's going on in The Handmaid's Tale is that there's been a takeover of the government by Christian fundamentalists and there's been, um, basically women are no longer full, people with full rights. And it happened sort of bit by bit. People didn't sort of realize what was going on. Women aren't able to work or have money. Um, all the women who are employed, have to get kind of mass fired, and
0: their bank accounts are frozen. Bank, and they
1: have to give their money if they're married to their to husbands. husbands. Yeah.
0: Um, which is sort of chilling. And then r- rape culture comes into a, a effect in which social standards for what is deemed an appropriate woman versus a slut. It becomes very clear and communicated to women who are out jogging, for instance. They're they're shunned and shamed for wearing shorts or wearing tank tops and things like that. Right, like the sleeve ban that was just placed, the sleeveless dress ban that was just implemented in the United States Congress. Correct. Um, so in this kind of uh,
1: unsettling world of Gilead, that's this this scary messed up place. Uh, fertile women are handmaids, and they basically sort of serve as wombs for high-ranking men uh, in the government called commanders. Every month they have a ceremony where they have to lay in between the legs of the commander's wife while the commander basically rapes them and holds their hands down and it's very, very scary and very, very messed up. And um, it's called a ceremony. It's called a ceremony and that's some real like doublespeak going on there. Um but divorced women, gay people, you know, academics, they either are strung up on the wall and sort of killed in public, or they're sent to what they call the colonies, which is a nuclear wasteland. So It's a scary situation, um, but that's the sort of rundown of the plot of the show.
0: Oh, and important to note, the reason these women have been turned into wombs, essentially, is because there's a total lack of of fertility that... Becomes rampant. Yeah. So this lack of fertility means nobody's having babies, and reasons for that is left unknown. It's an environmental reason. Like they they allude to a few yeah, things, like okay. oh, plastics
1: in the water have yeah. made men not able to have kids, or is something. It men? E- everyone. Yeah. yeah. A
0: lo- most women. Yeah, that's right. Most men are not able to have kids, and most women are not able to get pregnant. Right. So the very few women who are are basically kidnapped and turned into handmaids, which in this case is indentured, you know, servitude type. And then there are wives of these commanders who don't necessarily need to be um, reproductive, but they are part of the system of... of be- very similar to caste systems, in which there are different levels of classes of people, and women included, who are treated very differently in this system of oppression.
1: Right. So older women who are no longer fertile... um uh, I think they're what are
0: they Martha's? Well, some of a lot of people are sent off to the colonies. Oh, so they're just gotten for of work yeah. camps, like a lot of people. And then Martha's are women who are kind of like the SS. Mm-hmm. I can't help but draw parallels. Okay, so they're these are self-policing, and by self-policing, I mean women policing other women. So Martha's are basically the armed forces, controlling, commanding, training the handmaids, and then they are what are the wives called? Do they have a name? Commander's um, Wives? Yeah, I guess so. They wear teal. I just think of them as the teal ladies. Yeah. Uh,
1: Chrissy Teigen, who I feel like we talk about a lot, she <laughs> had a great tweet that was a picture of a long
0: <laughs> green dress with really long sleeves. I saw that. And she said, the commander will love this. <laughs> <laughs> so the teal ladies. And then all the handmaids wear red and heavily, heavily, like, heavily combined with religious speech and very structured lives for these women. They can't go anywhere alone. They can't online. read. They can't gather in groups. They have to walk in
1: twos. And what what I think is fascinating about the show is the way that it plays on this idea that you you never know who you're talking to. If they're a, an eye, if they're gonna if they're gonna rat you out for you know. Doing something the wrong way. And so you're never quite sure. Who to trust. who to trust. And so I thought the relationship between, um, Offred and, um. What's her name? L- Gil- Lorelai Gilmore. Gilmore. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Gilmore forgetting Girls? the character's name. Yeah. But they both very think the other is this, like, pious, this pious, you know. Cause some women have bought into this system. Oh, yes. Ugh. Oh, yes. Um, but yeah, it's interesting how it, that how the show uses, shows womanhood in terms of it being, sometimes you can't trust other women, sometimes other women have bought into it, sometimes other women, like, there's a really compelling woman who... Has sort of bought into it because she, she's like a former addict, and she said, "You know, you this is probably the, as good as it gets. Yeah, for me. My, yeah. This, my life isn't going to get any better. You probably had a good job and chopped the anthropology. My life is not like that. Was not like that. This is a, a better situation for me, which is hard to believe, but there you have
0: it. Mm, that's such a good point. So we could go all day in talking about the intricacies and like the the summary of this intensely amazing and rich um program." I need to just, as a disclaimer, say that I never read the Margaret Atwood book rendition of this that this is based on, so I know the rendition of this as told through Hulu. You read the book many years ago. I read correct? the book in high school. Yeah, um, which I think a lot of people did. Yeah, it was. It was. I also I went to Catholic high
1: school. It's a. Uh, it was uh, a. <laughs> ab- interesting. Yeah, reading about a, a a fun a really heavy fundamentalist religious takeover of a government while you're in in Catholic school was an interesting situation. So I know this show sounds really far-fetched, but according to Margaret Atwood, she's often talking about how she based this on things that have happened in real life. Um, she says, Handmaid's Tale is not a fantasy. It is a reality-based book. I call it DJing Reality, condensing reality into a, into a mashup. Uh, and so, I mean, I think that she, it's, this is her interpretation of, of what's happening. So I don't know that all the things that happen in the book are based exactly. in reality. Yeah, I that's
0: think, a- I have, I raised my eyebrows at that thinking like, okay, where in the world are women's, like, the wives holding the handmaids down for the men to basically rape them and, and taking part in this? I don't, I don't know where that's happening. But I think her broader point is, look at what happened in the 17th century with Puritans settling America. Look at what's happened in the past 30 years alone in Afghanistan where women went from having significant rights to a culture that of of modesty as an oppression, you know, and and religious extremism um, that has completely transformed the role of women in Afghanistan society to in Romania, where Decree 770 dealt with a plummeting birth rate in the 1960s by outlawing the use of contraception and abortion. Like, this is what was so terrifying to me watching the show. Were the flashbacks, which I heard weren't in the book, right? Right.
1: Um, I completely agree. It's these little. I mean, people can argue about whether or not this is, you know, a, a plausible, plausible right? situation. Yeah. But as someone who works at the at the intersection of um, you know politics and reproductive health, I can tell you that this is it. It's not. It's not untrue that we are living at a time where attacks on women's health and right. reproductive freedom and re- body autonomy is being threatened. That yes. is absolutely a true fact. And I can, I think the the flashbacks make the point that it happens bit by, by bit, bit by bit, and we don't really notice, and we're so overwhelmed by it that we turn. There, we don't even watch the news; it's right. too much.
0: It's this idea of it's totally rational to be a little bit complacent as your rights are rolled back and chiseled away on the slippery slope to watching a democracy crumble, and that's the other part of this that you know democracies are not guaranteed. We know this. Many other countries, you know, m- that have had longer uh serving democracies than our government have crumbled, have collapsed. We've seen governments crumble. And I never really fathomed what that could look like because I have the privilege of living in the United States in the past 29 years where we haven't seen that happen. And it just makes it so pal- palpable what it might look like to slowly have your rights rolled back to the point where... A government coup could transform your own geographic reality in the inability to escape that region. you know that's the refugee experience too right um it's terrifying, mm. and I do think i mean people
1: and and we'll get into this a, l- a little bit later, but people pushed back on the idea that everyone was calling the show timely in the age of trump right uh, and i I think there might be credence there, but I don't think it's incorrect that we are living in a time where there are attacks on women's body autonomy and that that kind of thing could happen incrementally. And when you say body autonomy, what do you mean by that? I mean the ability to make choices for for your own body yourself. And so if you live in certain states, you don't have the choice to go to Planned Parenthood and get an abortion because the government has close down your clinic.
0: Yeah, by, by virtue of the practical application of that so-called right, which was supposedly won, by the way, right, in the courts yeah. in the 1970s, Roe v. Wade was supposed to put that issue to rest, but a right that is constrained by practical uh, legislation that has made it impossible for clinics to actually be abortion providers, right. which they've done state by state as many ways as they can, means that... This is a right that's in theory only and does not apply to all women equally. I think this is part of the reason why intersectional feminism is so important. Totally. Because our victories of feminism, like reproductive freedom, have not been equally uh applied to all or haven't been equally... Realized for all women. So if you look at geography, if you look at race, if you look at class or, or economic security, when you look at those intersections of gender and all of those things, not all women's experiences are the same. Not all women have that right in real life. Totally. And I think that's so important to notice.
1: Also, things like legislation that says, okay, well, if you want to exercise your constitutionally or your Supreme yeah. Court protected right to get an abortion, we have to give you a transvaginal ultrasound for no medical reason, right? You know things like it's that. Punitive. It it is. It's yeah. so punitive, and I think that's what the show it illustrates that these things they're not medically sound, or they're not done for your own safety. They can make you think they're done for your own safety, but it's not, and that's what it's all about. It's about control.
0: It's about control, and it's about seeing women not as human beings, but as vehicles for for life, for vehicles for someone else. To create, right? That's what was so chilling about the way they talked about women's bodies in *The Handmaid's Tale*, and the way that women, the handmaids' bodies were used like livestock. Truly, I mean, they used cattle prods, and uh, yeah, exactly. And you know how I feel about the whole meat industry oh, in this yeah. world, anyway. So, the idea that. Women were seen as in this very benevolent way. Some of their torture, some of their rape, some of their, uh, oppression was veiled in this God ordained sort of religious rephrasing and reframing Benevolence of God has given you this gift. You should feel very lucky. You have the privilege to be a handmaid because God has shined kindly upon you. What like open is the fruit or whatever? Blessed be the fruit. Yeah. May the Lord open. It's like every time I heard <laughs> that, I was like, please stop talking in metaphors about, you know, your vagina. Oh, can I say that? You can say that. I can say that. It's just come on, people. Like this is a woman. This is her body. She is an agent of our own body, but that is so stripped from The Handmaids. And I think, um, what's her name, Moss? Catherine Moss? No, Elizabeth Moss. Thank you. Elizabeth Moss does such a profound job as an actress in this, in showing what the psychological trauma of being ripped of your personhood looks like, of being stripped away and made to feel like you're not a human being.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the things that I think on the show is so salient is... How things like jokes, how things like, you know, playing Scrabble, how these things remind her, getting a magazine, these things remind her of her life before and what it was like to be a person, what it was like to have opinions and what it was like to, you know, be able to express those opinions. And that's something that is completely stripped away from her life as a handmaid. Yes. So I think we should talk more about some of the inner workings of Gilead, race, the role of women after a quick break and a word from our sponsor. Mm -hmm. And we're back. And we were just getting kind of fired up about this really intense show, Handmaid's Tale. Um, one of the things that is so fascinating about the show is the role of women and how women are really architects of this very anti-woman oppressive system. You have folks like uh, Mrs. Waterford, who her viral book about women's rights is what made this system kind of Possible, possible in right? the first place, yeah. Um, you have women like Aunt Lydia, who is very cruel, but also weirdly can be kind of loving in a kind of way. Like, she seems to be the only... She's patronizing that, right? Patron- yeah, patronizing. Um But certainly as a woman who is architect or a- an agent of keeping this anti-woman system alive. Um And it really, that reminds me so much of reality, because you actually yeah. do see women who are kind of architects of the um oppression of other women.
0: Hmm. Like,
1: like who? Like, think about... You know, folks like women against feminism, like people who yeah. loudly yeah. talk about why they don't need feminism. Think about folks like, you know, women in the Trump administration who are helping to, t- in, in yeah. a very literal Little. way, helping yeah. to take away rights of women, um, here in America. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's, I think it's true to life that women have a role in the oppression of other women sometimes.
0: Definitely. And I feel like, I think of the caste system in India as an example of how class can sometimes trump gender. In uh, in drawing those boundaries between us versus them, so there's very little solidarity and common identity shared between Lydia, between Mrs. Waterford, between a handmaid, and between the cook, you know, in the house. Like, yeah, sure, they share the same gendered experience. They sh- they share the same oppression in some ways, you know. Even Mrs. Waterford's not getting invited into, you know, her opinion is not really welcome in the political arena, but. They lord over each other. You see at different points in time when, um, Mrs. Waterford is feeling shut out of the decision-making process, she penalizes, uh, Offred, right? She, she lashes out and she sort of says, well, at least I can lord over this other right. person. And it's interesting how intersectionality comes back into play here because in that sort of, um, the womanhood, that common denominator is less salient. Than Definitely. The other differences of power and privilege.
1: Well, and I think you see that so much in the criticisms around the show and race. Yeah. And how race is sort of completely erased in the show. Um, so in the book, the only way that race really comes up is that they say that all the Blacks have been sent back to Africa, quote-unquote, and, and then the all Jews the Jews are sent to back Israel. to Israel. Yeah. yeah, Um And so that's, like, the only race component of the book. What a convenient way to just
0: not have to do They're deal. all gone. We She's do- like, I'm an author. I can do what I want. <laughs> I'm just going to simplify this entire plot line by forgetting about women in this, like, very minority pers- position of race or religion.
1: It's like there was, there is an artist who... Um, doesn't know how to draw hands, and so they always draw characters with hands and pockets because <laughs> don't have to deal with it. Just get rid of them. Hands always oh my in pockets. God, that metaphor, um,
0: that's great.
1: Yeah, uh, and so the show has what, what they call colorblind casting, where there are black characters, but the race is not mentioned or does not come up, and so. One of the actresses is Samira Wiley, who you might know as Pousset, who or just the new black, who yes. I am like deeply, deeply obsessed with and think everything everything she does is sunshine to me. I follow her on Instagram and I'm like first comment every time. Like, yes, <laughs> way to go to the beach. <laughs> I love her so much. Um but yeah, so she's a handmaid and they don't really explain are the handmaid are what a black handmaid be a handmaid for a white commander. I don't think there are white or are black or non-white commanders, Commanders. but there are non-white men, like there are non-white guards, there are non-white drivers and such. So it's not clear to me how, how or if race is playing a role in this situation. Well,
0: the the way that those behind the Hulu series described their decision there was by saying, well, this is a post-racial society, which I find a little bit comical and, like, kind of a huge cop-out. So you're telling me that we've regressed when it comes to gender, but we are somehow woke and tolerant and inclusive on race. Yeah. Like, those two things could ever coexist throughout history.
1: I loved this article um, in The Undefeated by Soraya Nadia McDonald. Um, She says... So Gilead is post-racial because the human race is facing extinction. And that prompted Americans to get over several hundred years worth of racist education and social <laughs> conditioning that depicted blacks as inferior and less than human because Jesus, you know, <laughs> I, I I have a hard time buying that that would be the case. It yeah. seems really unlikely for me to swallow that because this oppressive government took over and women are now less than human. We we're all we are all
0: We're all Kumbaya. We're all Kumbaya on race. the race front. I
1: don't buy that at all. But the show would have you believe that.
0: Yeah, and I feel like I mean, I see the intent here though. They were trying to be inclusive in their casting, but it really required more creative energy around the storyline, don't you think?
1: Yeah, I mean that's what the um Producers of the show have said that they, you know, when Samira Wiley walks into a casting room, you cast her because she's amazing. beautiful and amazing and talented and smart. And please call me. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. That sounded creepy. <laughs> no, I like it. Call the show. Let's get her on. Oh, my God. I would I would, I would, di- I would, die of I happiness. I would pay money to see I, you meet I, her I,
0: and freak out.
1: I would die of happiness. Right. I would die of happiness. I'm going to
0: try to make it happen.
1: um But yeah, so I, and part of me gets that. And I, I, I actually love, as a woman of color, I actually love when... Casting directors say, we casted for the best person. Um, I saw that with Louis, Louis Takei. Um, his, on the show, his kids are clearly white. And when they show their, their biological mother, she is a woman of color. And they don't explain how, like, what the situation is. Huh. And he just said, yeah, she was the best person for the role. So we cast her. Um, it also happened in the, one of my favorite movies, The Craft. Um, the character, the black character in that movie, she wasn't written to be a black woman and she just came in and was the best. And so they put her in. So I, on the one hand, I like that, but also I think it, it, it warrants a little bit more explanation or a little bit more of teasing out, I think, for a show like Handmaid's Tale.
0: I agree completely. And I would add to that, that there is another problem with race that's not dealt with in the show, but it's sort of omnipresent that Noah Berlatsky at The Verge wrote about, um, that what they're really doing in addition to erasing race and and sort of people of color from the story narrative, from their race being significant in their characters, is they're actually using the history of oppression that stems from very real institutions of oppression, like slavery in the United States and very real oppressive behaviors and customs and histories in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, and the the use and inclusion of female genital mutilation, and the inclusion of stoning as a form of punishment, of of a death sentence via stoning. All of these things happen in this world, oftentimes in our lifetimes, to actual women of color. But here we are... Watching the handmaid's tale, repackaging the history of black people, the history of, of women of color to provoke empathy for the suffering of white people.
1: I, it, it, I think it's such a legitimate criticism, right? In the 1960s and 70s, Mexican and Mexican-American women were, went into hospitals for C-sections and got sterilized without right. their consent. The same thing happened to, to black women in this country not even that long ago. And so, you know, people have made the point that the kinds of really, really oppressive systems that these women are living under, things like not being able to gather in groups, not being able to read, uh, pub- public spectacles of, of their, of their deaths, that happened, that happened in America to black women and black men. The fact that, that they're using these very real, hist- these very real horrors that have historical precedent for women of color as a storytelling device, I think it's fair to ask whether that's okay.
0: Yeah, and I I wonder what the answer is, because I read Noah's article and was left thinking... Well, if we have a predominantly white audience in the United States and you're using historical realities, but with white characters, to engender wokeness, to trigger fear, to create a sense of we all better wake up America, we better make sure our rights aren't rolled back, do the ends justify the means? And I'm not saying they do, but I don't think it's fair to say like this is definitely all terrible and bad. Like you're suffering uh, from this one historical group of, and by your, I don't mean any one group, but but whatever this, you know, this this suffering th- from history, can that not be repurposed? Can that not be reassigned? Is it not okay to just not include any women of color as victims in the show? And I think that's a that's a stretch in, yeah, in fact. Yeah,
1: I hear what you what you're saying. Uh, speaking of Samira Wiley, I mean that is the argument that folks make about Orange is the New Black where the Ugh. creator there mined that show for a lot. And spoiler alert if you haven't watched that either, but the creator mined a lot of real women who were really in prison, their stories um when when spoiler alert, when mm. Samira Wiley dies on the show that she says, I can't breathe. And when, when asked about this, the creator of the show said, it was really important to me to highlight the stories of women who are often marginalized women who are behind bars. And people wouldn't do that if it wasn't, people would not grapple with those stories if it didn't have, you know, Piper, Piper, Piper as the, you know, as the white, as the white protagonist who's telling these stories. But
0: it is different because she is showing She created. I mean, we were all sobbing watching that character, Samira's character, die. I mean, that was like the most horrific episode of anything I've ever watched. Maybe until Handmaid's Tale came out. (laughs) But she has a black beloved character die and makes us all weep over her, and that's that's justified. That's defensible. You know what I mean? Like that's different. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I don't know. I just think it's. I think I think it's complicated.
1: I I, honestly I see both sides. I guess. Right. I know a lot of folks were accusing her of torture porn or sort of like, you know, like, let's just show a bunch of, you know, really sweet women of color die and have it be like pornographic almost in the... I I understand that argument. I also see the argument of wanting to uplift these stories to inspire change. And the author behind Orange is the New Black, the book, has actually been involved in a lot of... The real
0: Piper? The real Piper
1: um, has been involved in prison issues and prison activism. So, you know, shout out for that. Um, I think it's important to talk through some of the issues that kind of have real-world impact uh, from the show when we come back from a quick break from our sponsor. And we're back. We're just talking about some of the nitty-gritty of the show Handmaid's Tale. And one of the things that I think is so fascinating about this show is that in real world, you know, not in Gilead, here in... Earth, um, <laughs> what is currently the United States of America? <laughs> yeah, folks have been using um, handmaids as a form of protest against
0: H- handmaids, like outfits, outfits, like cosplay.
1: Yes. Co- uh, yeah, like yeah, protest cosplay. So, oh. um, when Trump went to, uh, That should be more of a thing. Protest cosplay. Yeah, oh, I like it. I like it. Um So when Trump went to Poland, lots of women dressed as handmaids in the red outfits and the and the white winged. Uh, head covering. Wings
0: off, ladies? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: to protest his visit. Uh, here in America, um, women d- rocked their wings and red outfits to protest, uh, Trump's Trump care, which defunds Planned Parenthood. Uh, they, they, they gathered on Capitol Hill wearing their outfits to sort of
0: send a signal that they, that this wasn't okay. Do you think that's been effective? Do you think that is accurate? Like, I, I almost see that as a symbol for is it is it fair to use the metaphor of a red herring, right? It's like, be aware. It's like sending in a, I'm mixing all my metaphors here, but canary into the coal mine, right? Like, does that apply here? This idea of a warning shot for women to wake up and make sure that rights as they're being rolled back, especially as it pertains to women's reproductive rights, are being associated with Handmaid's Tale's dystopian future because it's, it definitely seems very far away and very implausible, but by evoking the handmade, you know, image, what they're saying is this is what could happen.
1: I see both sides of that argument. Um, writing at The Guardian, Jessa Crispin is like not sure at all that we should be associating Handmaid's Tale with, with Trump and, and things like that. She writes, if this propaganda is not being used to sell us a war, we should be interested in what it is selling us instead. That so many women are willing to compare their own political situation living under a democratically elected president with no overwhelming religious ideology. With the characters' position as sexual slaves and baby incubators for the ruling class, shows us that it is always satisfying to position yourself as an as the oppressed bravely struggling against oppression. Um so I don't necessarily like I wow, wouldn't, that was pretty harsh. Yeah, I wouldn't go that far, right? I, I sort of get what she's saying, just that we it's fair to level set and ask where we are actually at. But the show makes the point that it happens incrementally, so I don't think anyone is saying we are living in Gilead. I, I bet I
0: get. I bet they are though. Yeah, I bet someone saying, is yeah, saying that. Yeah. yeah. Um. And Jess is saying your victimhood, while it might be real, is nowhere near the victimhood of institutionalized, you know, oppression at the extent that was being a handmaid. Correct. Which is definitely fair. Yeah. Right. I think that's fair. I also think that the point that the show
1: is making is that. We should be stay staying alert about these things. I think it's also fair. And so I don't think it's I don't think it's not fair to draw parallels with, because I definitely see parallels. Um, but I think it's it's worth it to take a step back and not right. necessarily go overboard.
0: What I always come back to is the vigilance, like the lack of vigilance that led to this past electoral outcome. Most people thought Trump couldn't be elected. Most people didn't think Trump would be elected. Most most of America assumed it was a shoe-in for Hillary. I mean, I think back to the coffee house scenes between Elizabeth Moss and Samira Wiley. Samira Wiley. So the two of them getting coffee at that same coffee shop where they were called sluts and totally disrespected by uh men's rights activist member, or just a total misogynistic right. dude who didn't see them as full human beings, to then the presence of uh paramilitary people or military presence that we start to see on the street, to that same coffee shop being the center of a gun, you know, a, a, a riot, right? I forgot about Remember that. Remember how yeah. they were protesting A la women's march style? A la Black Lives Matter style where they're, I
1: mean, they're, they're, I absolutely have seen in real life with my own eyes a intense paramilitary forces just on the street, right. tanks, exactly. things like
0: that. So then the government takes this incredibly harsh crackdown. That was the beginning of the coup. That was the beginning of Gilead's, you know, uprising, right. taking over of Boston. And you can just see from the same perspective, from the same scene geographically, this one coffee shop, just how incremental and how much your life can change. And that, to me, really sounded like what a lot of Afghanistan has gone through in the past 30, 40 years, and being in your own lifetime, in your own neighborhood, watching your government change. I mean, how? I mean, how do you even survive? How does your identity survive through that? Crap.
1: I I went into this episode ready to pump the brakes on the Gilead comparisons. Now I'm packing a go bag. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're a prepper. I'm going to leave t- today, leave the studio and get a go bag. <laughs> I'm prepper. I love it. We, Brad and I have long had a zombie apocalypse uh, plan in place just in case. Oh, my friend and
1: I, we have a situation. If we are ever in a horror movie situation yeah. and one of us gets out, we have a pact that you go back for the other one. Oh, that's a good Yeah. I'll, yeah. Go back. I'll go back for you, Emily. I'll go back for yeah. you,
0: too. Alright. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's let's wrap this baby up. This is I, I'm dying to hear from our fans on what they thought about this. I'm sure there are more nuances. I could talk all day about this. And um, I'm curious to hear whether y'all think it's appropriate to compare and and what you learned. What did you take away from the show? and And also, what have you heard, Bridget, about the future of the show from who's perspective? So
1: two exciting things what already got picked up for a season two because, Lord knows that cliffhanger left me <gasps> wanting know. more. Oh my gosh. Um but so one they've already made a promise to tackle Race more um in the second season. Um the the show producer says that he's had a lot of time to rethink what's going on with Race and he really wants to tackle it because, you know, he wants to be That's um yeah, so great. It is great. Um and then a little uh, kind of juicy <laughs> morsel for my hip hop fans out there. Margaret Atwood wants Drake to cameo uh, on season two, so we'll see if that happens. I mean, what? Because <laughs> he's Canadian, and they get to
0: Canada. Oh, okay, that makes a little more sense. Yeah.
1: And also, she's a huge Drake fan. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> actually, you if, you know. if you read this, it, it's an interview with um Juno Diaz. And it really actually <laughs> sounds like she... <laughs> <laughs> loves Drake and it's like uh, in his mentions
0: why does Drake come up on the show so much we never intend to like talk through Drake I'm not even a huge fan I know well that this is what happens every time we mention Drake we're like do you like him and we're like I don't know man alright so I think I think we can put this chapter at least this season of Handmaid's Tale to rest for right now I am dying to hear from all y'all on what you thought about margaret atwood's book about the hulu rendition what you learned through watching handmaid's tale so make sure to hit us up with your thoughts at mom stuff podcast on twitter stuff mom never told you on instagram and of course we always love receiving your emails at mom stuff at howstuffworks.com bridget any last words i think that's it just uh pack your go bags (laughs) get
1: your passports and as always Nolite te besterdes cara bordorum.